Grab your Bible. If you don't have one, there should be a black hardcover Bible in the seats around you. You are going to need that, especially if you'd like to stay awake this morning, at least to be able to follow along. But uh, I am uh, excited about this passage um, in the way that I feel like uh, today we're all going to be kind of John the Baptist. Um, Not that we're not going to wear camel's hair or eat locusts dipped in honey, although I hear there is some interesting chili flavors tonight. Um, Honey, locusts, cornbread, that could work, that could work. But uh, I say John the Baptist because John the Baptist cleared the way, prepared the way for Jesus to come, and I feel like I'm preparing the way for the climax of the book of Isaiah next week. Now we still, don't get too excited, we still have several months left, but... Next week is chapter 53, um, and if you've been a Christian for any length of time, um, Isaiah 53 is one of the uh, jewels in the crown of the passages of the Bible, and uh, Pastor Ron gets to do that next week, so I'm not equating Pastor Ron with Jesus, um, but I feel like John the Baptist this morning, that we're preparing the way, we're kind of getting ready for um, the climax next week. We have been in Isaiah for quite a while, so you should be turning to Isaiah 51 today. We're going to get through all of 51 and most of 52. We'll leave off the last couple verses for next week. But I want you, as you turn to um, this chapter, perhaps you've not been here long or you weren't here for the introductory sermon or you've missed some things, but we have been in Isaiah for several months, and it's helpful to remember the context of what we're talking about. We're talking about a man named Isaiah, prophet of the Lord, living in around 700 B.C., writing... Uh, a book, preaching sermons, editing, putting it all into a document um, that was primarily written for people 150-ish years later. Um, The Lord revealed to his prophet that uh, the Babylonians would take away the southern kingdom of Judah into captivity and exile. And about 150 years after Isaiah, they would be coming back to the land. And so this, um, you'll see this today in our passage as well. This is written in 700 B.C., primarily four people in about 538 B.C. But we know, having the New Testament, that Isaiah is quoted throughout the New Testament. And so there are fulfillments of prophecy from Isaiah that are happening in the Christmas story, uh, that are happening in the life of Jesus, that are happening um, in the life of the apostles in Acts. Uh, We also see that there are fulfillments of this uh, book, and this chapter even, uh, that are yet to come. And so Isaiah, writing 2,700 years ago, has all these different flashpoints throughout history um, where Scripture is being fulfilled. And it can get a little hard to keep track of who's who and what's what and when's when and where's where. Um, So you'll note in your notes today that the points just have the name of the speaker because that was my first hurdle in studying this week was who's talking when. Um, We believe that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit but that God used men to write down his word. And so there are times where there's a direct quote from God, from Yahweh, and there's times where it is Isaiah writing from his perspective. And so getting that straight was one of the hardest things about getting ready for this sermon. So that's kind of what we're going to do for our points. It's just going to be who the speaker is and the verses, and we'll fill it in from there. Uh, Last, I want you to imagine living in a land far away from any that you've ever known, from wherever you grew up, and training your children and your grandchildren to sing the Star-Spangled Banner or Take Me Out to the Ball Game 
or God bless America in a foreign land. Teaching them the songs of your youth in a place where they don't sing those songs. Um, Imagine telling stories and using phrases like the Bay Area or the South Bay or the Inland Empire or Tahoe, the Sierras, the Rocky Mountains. Fill in wherever you want there with your uh, vacation spot or parts of the land that you love. And having to explain to your children and grandchildren these places that roll off your tongue, but they've known nothing about because they've never been there. All they know is what you've told them. Now imagine that you are giving them this information because after you are gone, you want them someday, perhaps, to either go back themselves or to pass it on to their children. That's what today's text should feel like because of Isaiah writing it for people in exile, not in the land of Judah or Israel in the future. The book was written to those living outside of the land that they, their parents and their grandparents would have called home. It's an interesting perspective to think about. And it appears that in our passage, Isaiah is, is slowly shifting. In the last several messages, in the last several chapters of Isaiah, we've seen talk of Cyrus, we've seen talk of Babylon, we've seen talk of these historical empires. And noticeably, in the last several chapters and into today's, we don't get any mention um, specifically of Babylon or Cyrus or Persia. The only physical location that seems to come up is the city of Jerusalem. Some have speculated that this is because Isaiah is moving towards language um, that conveys more of a spiritual lens. Um, He has dealt with some historical issues and now is dealing with the heart issues. And we will see that, of course, come to fruition next week. The problem is not not mainly now captivity in a foreign land, but captivity of the heart. Captivity of the heart. So we'll see in this passage calls to listen, calls to wake up, calls to look, calls to give attention. Something is happening and something is about to happen. This is the thrust of our passages. You'll see all kinds of verbs that are repeated, um, not just once, Sometimes not just twice, but sometimes three times in order to emphasize what the people hearing this message need to do. So if you look at uh, chapter 51 of Isaiah, we're going to look at the first eight verses here. And Yahweh is speaking directly to his people. Okay, let's keep that in mind. Yahweh is speaking directly to his people. Let's read all eight of those first verses. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness... You who seek Yahweh, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For Yahweh comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of Yahweh. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out for me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. 
The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. The Lord is speaking to his people. He's commanding them to wake up, listen up, look, listen, give attention, lift up your eyes, look around. And he even tells them to look back. So in verse 1, he, he calls the people to listen to him, but he doesn't just call all the people. He calls specifically now for those who pursue righteousness. For those who were living in such a way as to obey God, to pursue, to run after, to get closer to. You who seek the Lord, searching at night with your flashlight, trying to find that thing that you need. You who are doing that, look to the rock from which you were hewn. This is a picture of a quarry. Um, we, I think we drove by some yesterday on the way to the Iwana Games. Um, but a quarry, uh, especially in the times of ancient Israel, would be where rocks would be cut out of the earth and transported to build a building. Um, for those of you that are able to come to Israel with us, um, this June we'll be seeing places where the rocks were removed and we'll be seeing places where they were placed, taken from one place and brought to another. And so the picture here is to look to your origin, look to your rock and to the quarry from which you were dug. So the picture is to look back at where you came from. Uh, Look back at where your origin is. And we see that specifically here in verse 2. Look to Abraham, your father. Father Abraham had many sons, right? That's, That's what we're talking about here. Father Abraham, the beginning of the Jewish people. Look back to him and look to Sarah. Why? Well, if we go back to the book of Genesis... And if we're familiar with this story, perhaps not. It would be a good idea to look at this in the, the chapters of Genesis. Um, Abraham and Sarah were living in a foreign land, probably in what's now Iraq. Um, and God called them. By the way, there are no Jews. God calls Abraham. He's the first Jew. <laughs> Made a Jew out of Gentiles. And here are Abraham and Sarah, young and spry and newly married. Oh, wait, no, that's not how the story goes. They are old and past the time of bearing children. They have not been able to have a child, and now they are old, and now it's never going to happen. God chooses the least likely people in the world to start a nation from, much less to promise descendants as the stars in the heavens. And yet that is what happened. The Jewish people are to look back at Father Abraham. Why? He was one, but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. Here's the picture. Look back at your ancestors. Look at what I did at the beginning of your people. I made all this nation, all of you that are in captivity and exile, all of you that are here still in the land of Judah, I made all of you from one really old couple that shouldn't have been able to have kids. And from that couple sprang the whole Jewish race. If I could do that, that's how the argument goes, right? Dot, dot, dot. Is anything too hard for me? This is what the Lord says in other places. If I could make this happen from this couple, what can I do with all of you? We're not just dealing with a couple now. We're dealing with descendants. And verse 3 continues this picture. 
For Yahweh comforts Zion. This, this is used to comfort them. He comforts all her waste places. This is the message of the second half of Isaiah, starting in chapter 40, verse 1. Do you remember that part in the middle of Isaiah where it went from poetry to those four chapters of historical narrative? Sennacherib attacking Hezekiah, and Isaiah comes to Hezekiah, and God wipes out the armies. Um, this is, that was the hinge the book moved on. Now we're in the second part. And the very first word of chapter 40, verse 1 is comfort. Good job, Vicki. <laughs> it's comfort. It's comfort. And this is the, the, the theme that is returned to again and again. So Yahweh is giving historical context for there to be reason for comfort. Why should we be comforted? Well, you should be comforted because you should look to the rock that you came from. Look to Abraham and Sarah. I did that. I multiplied and blessed him. And now you're here and I can do it again. Not only that, but Yahweh promises to make her wilderness um, like Eden. Her desert like the garden of Yahweh. He says that this place, Zion, which is um, specifically used for the city of Jerusalem, but also can expand to more of this picture of God's people being designated as Zion. Um, And so... These, this, this people, this place are going to be made to, be, to bloom like Eden. Wilderness and desert to become like a garden. And the picture works really well because we can understand that physically. Um, in Southern California, we're not too far from the desert. We can understand um, this. Uh, we're not far from the wilderness. So we can kind of get this picture. But it also transfers really easily um, to a metaphor, right? From dry, weary, to flourishing, to growth. Um, and this is the, the picture that God uses that works both physically and spiritually. Lastly, in verse 3, joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving in the voice of song. Now, again, who is he writing this to? People in exile. People in captivity. This is not their current reality. It is not fun for God's people to live under foreign dictators who worship other gods Um, they have been forcibly removed from their home from the place that god promised to abraham land that he promised and yet god here promises a reversal this great reversal is promised and not only that but joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving in the voice of song we'll come back to this metaphor again and again pastor ron started the series off several months ago, with using the mountains metaphor. And I thought of this yesterday in Arcadia um, as we went to the Iwana Games to see our kids compete. Um, There was one place where um, Amy was driving and I was navigating and looking out the windows to the right, um, the the perspective shifted as we got closer to the hills. And I I saw Mount Baldy um, there prominently with its snowy cap, but as we got closer to mountains, Mount Baldy was harder and harder to see because the hills and mountains in front of it um, dominated my my view and again this is just like prophecy where sometimes it's harder to see what's now and what's about to happen and what's going to happen in a long time what's going to happen even longer time after that so when is this fulfillment were the people in exile to think when they came back to the land and rebuilt the temple that it was blooming like eden probably a little bit where they were now back in their home And they were able to cultivate what had been destroyed and left for dead. But really, this is a partial fulfillment um, throughout history. And then a a literal fulfillment at the end. Because we get to Revelation 21 and 22 and we we have a garden again. 
Well, there's a garden in Genesis 1 and 2, and there's a garden in Revelation 21 and 22. This spans the history of the universe. This is what God is pointing to. And, and then he, he decides to, to shift slightly in verse 4. So look at this. Give attention to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation. And he begins to speak of not only their restoration, but also the spread to all the nations. Uh, um, Israel, even to this day, is a very tiny sliver of land right in the middle of Africa, Asia, and Europe. Um, some people call it the land between. Um, they kept getting ransacked and destroyed because for any other empire to impose its will on any other empire, they had to go right through the land of Israel. This is right in, by the way, strategic, right? I mean, maybe just an accident the Lord put them right in the middle of everything. Right in the middle of trade, tradeways and the, the center of the known world at the time. But here we see that not only will God's people be restored, but they will, the, the, the light will go out to the peoples, verse 4. A light to the peoples. My righteousness, verse 5, draws near. My salvation has gone out. And my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands, which indicates the faraway places. The coastlands hope for me. And for my arm, they wait. You see this picture of the arm of the Lord. It's, it's to talk about the strength. Uh, the, the arm does things. The arm does what the mind wants to do. Right? The arm accomplishes. So God's arm is what we're waiting for. God's will has been stated, and now we're waiting God's arm to fulfill what he has said he will do. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Yeah, look up. Look to the earth beneath. Look all around. Look at all that I've made. The heavens vanish like smoke. This is apocalyptic, end times language, right? The earth will wear out like a garment. An interesting picture. You know, go in your closet and you're like, man, I have had this shirt forever. <laughs> I do that every once in a while. And then you notice it's kind of like not as thick as it used to be, not as thin. I see some wives laughing. Is that... Some of you are thinking, I need to go through my husband's drawers and start throwing things away when he's not around. <laughs> yeah, keeping these shirts forever. I, I, still have, um, I still have a few uh, pieces of clothing that I was wearing before I met Amy. And I realized every once in a while, I'm like, oh man, that's had that for like 12 or 13 years. This is a trusty shirt. The picture here is of that shirt no longer being trusty. It is wearing out. There are holes, and as much as you want to deny it, man, it's time to get a new one. Okay, it's it's the earth is wearing out like a garment. It's shutting down its entropy. They who dwell in it will die in like manner. That's a rosy picture. The picture of judgment that is to come. And yet Yahweh says at the end of verse six, but my salvation will be forever. Here is what he is promising. He is promising a salvation that is eternal. That will last beyond the years of the earth of even the heavens. And my righteousness will never be dismayed. God's salvation promises to his people last beyond the earth they are living on, the land they live in. This is interesting because the word for earth or land is the same in Hebrew. So we have to figure out if it's talking about all of the earth or just the land that we're in. And I think here it it kind of applies to both. Um, Where if you're in the land or if you're out of the land, if the earth is bearing fruit, or if the earth is being destroyed and falling apart, God's salvation will be forever. He reiterates that in verse 7. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, talking to his people, his followers, the people in whose heart is my law, my Torah. Fear not. We've seen this throughout Isaiah. 
Fear not. Don't be afraid. Fear not the reproach of man. Um, the, the word there is a different word for man, and it kind of implies like frail or ordinary, just like merely human. It's mere man. You're afraid of that kind of, just, that's that guy, the generic human being. Um, don't fear him, nor be dismayed at their revilings. Why? For the moth will eat them up like a garment. So not only will the earth uh, be eaten up, but the people on it who do not follow God will also go away. The critics, the enemies, those who despise and revile them will also be eaten up. The worm will eat them like wool. Again, another but. But my righteousness will be forever. And my salvation to all generations. You see, what God is beginning to detail to his people in seed form, it will take fruition in the Gospels and the book of Acts, is that God's intention here is not to have a regional people in a, in a little place in the Middle East. God's intention is for his salvation to spread to the ends of the earth. That's why we sang that song this morning, to the ends of the earth, because that's where the gospel has gone. The good news has gone to the ends of the earth. We are part of the fulfillment of this. We get to be a part of this. And it's very interesting to see that the promise continues to be, even though right now things don't look good, even though right now things are not going your way, hold on, lift up your eyes, take the long view. See what is in store for those who trust in me. On the next three verses, verses 9 through 11, it seems that um, Isaiah begins to speak. And so the Lord is referred to in the third person, although sometimes the Lord does that for himself, which is why sometimes this gets a little confusing to follow. But verses 9 through 11, Yahweh has kind of let Isaiah speak. In verse 9, it says, Awake! Awake! Put on strength! O arm of Yahweh, awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. This is Isaiah speaking for his people. God, where are you? It's like you're sleeping. Hey, wake up, help us. Uh, Your arm, we need your arm like you did before. See, the, the Israelites were the people who passed on, they were supposed to pass on what God had done. Remember the Passover In the institution of the Passover, even while the children of Israel are still in Egypt, God says, when you get out of here, every year you're going to celebrate this. And every year you're going to tell your son, when he's like, what are we doing this for, Dad? You're like, this is why we're doing this. You see, and only for a generation or two did that even work for there to be actual memory of it. So within three or four generations, by the time they get to the promised land, now you've got people who didn't even experience it passing it on to their kids, and they who did not experience it will pass it on to their kids. And hundreds of years later, we'll be talking about, wow, Passover. The Lord rescued our people from Egypt 500 years ago. This is a long time. In fact, at this time, just just as an interesting fact, this is like around 700 years after Passover, Okay, that God rescued his people. And that becomes very important because look at the end of verse 9. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? Uh, This picture um, might be interesting to you. You're wondering, why is Rahab um, a dragon? Um, What's being referred to here? The, 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 The trouble here is English. English is the problem. Um... 
So some of you are thinking, Rahab, wasn't she the person that kind of let the Israelite spies in and Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho, and they were marching around? Okay. Um, th- this whole story makes a lot of sense when you can look in Hebrew that Rahab's name is spelled differently, but we can't do it in English. Hebrew has a hey and a chet, but they look the same when it comes over into English. We only have an H. So this is actually Rahav which is not the name of Rahab. She would take great offense because you just mispronounced her name, okay, which is more like Rahav, okay? Big difference with the and the, not that, okay? So this is not Rahab. They're not picturing the woman from Jericho as some kind of dragon. Somehow there's mythology. No, no, no. This is a picture that actually comes from Babylonian and Canaanite religions of this dragon, usually called a chaos monster. And generally in Middle Eastern mythologies, um, the god like El or Baal or Marduk in Babylon had to defeat the chaos monster in order to create order, in order for things to work out. So chaos monster, Rahab, had to be taken care of before the creation of usually mankind. Um, it looks like the Israelites kind of borrowed this picture and applied um, the chaos monster that lives in the deeps and the, the, the ocean was a scary place when you didn't have uh, boats that could uh, go through it really easily. And it was, uh, you know, you saw a fin and you, ah, what's that? There's sea monsters, what's going on? So the ocean was a scary place. So the picture here is of Egypt, applied to Egypt, where the, the great river Nile flows into the Mediterranean and water is such an important thing uh, that Israel seemed to now consider Egypt one of their enemies as the chaos monster, as Rahab in English here. Okay? And we've already seen this in chapters 27 and 30. Sometimes the same monster is called Leviathan in the Bible. Okay? So it seems like Leviathan and Rahab are used to talk about this chaos monster. Well, what's the point? What's the purpose? The purpose is water is a very dangerous, scary thing for people that don't have any boats. Right? And especially if you don't have a YMCA to teach you swimming lessons, it is a hard thing to consider crossing or getting into the water. Bad things happen in the water. What did God do when water stood in the way of his people? <laughs> He's part of the water. I mean, right? This is, the picture is of God didn't even need to kill the chaos monster because God's in charge of the water. And when God says water part, the water parts. So in looking back, the children of Israel needed to, were saying, God, wow, when you saved our, our ancestors, when you saved them through the water, do it again. Do it again. We need a new exodus. We need a new rescue. Verse 11, And the ransomed of Yahweh shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. God, rescue us. Fulfill your promises. And we can claim these promises too because this language is borrowed by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. Did you notice that? And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Revelation chapter 21. No more pain. No more sorrow. No more tears. No more curse. This is what we we look for. This is what we long for, for the final exodus of God's people as we cross into the promised land. That picture is very important in the pilgrim's progress. Right, do you remember that? On on the way to the celestial city, what's the last thing that the pilgrim, that Christian, that all the followers trying to get to the celestial city have to do? Cross a river. They have to get in the water and cross 
the water. This is the picture that is given to us of crossing the water. God, give us joy and happiness and singing in our new land. Well, Yahweh then answers, verse 12, emphatically, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass? Why are you afraid of people? Why are you afraid of people like yourself? Okay, that just like you, there's people, verse 13, and have forgotten, ah, there's the problem, have forgotten Yahweh, your maker. What did he do? Oh, he merely stretched out the heavens, laid the foundations of the earth. (laughs) That's it. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. Where is the wrath of the oppressor? I mean, the children of Israel had a good answer. Uh, We're not in our land. (laughs) We have been exiled and captive. Our kids don't even know uh, about our land. They were born here. This seems to be uh, of easy answer, Lord. The wrath of the oppressor is here. So here's what God says. Okay, fine. Verse 14. He who is bowed down, the picture is of labor, like hard labor. I like bowed down. You can't, you can't look up. There's no time to look up because all you're doing is working. You're a slave. He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit. Neither shall his bread be lacking. Verse 15. How do we know this? I am Yahweh, your God. Again, just echoes of, of God speaking to Moses, right? I am who I am. How do, how do I know? What do I, what I tell the people of Israel, Moses said, when I go to them? And God says, tell them I am sent you. This is God. He says, I'm going to rescue you. How do you know that? I am. I am Yahweh, your God. What do I do? I stir up the sea so that its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. It's this picture of God being the leader of the armies of heaven. And I have put my words in your mouth. What an incredible thing. My words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand. My little people, I'll just put my hand over you. You're safe. Establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Do you notice those things stacked together? Establishing the heavens. <laughs> Space. Hubble telescope, right? Okay. Nova. You got to think of these shows you've seen of all these incredible things in space, laying the foundations of the earth, the Grand Canyon, right? Going down into the depths of the sea to see the foundations of the earth. And included in that same topic, saying to Zion, you are my people. Those do not seem comparable. And yet God is saying, this is cosmic significance. I created the heavens, I created the earth, I called my people. All in the same category. This is amazing And this is what God is trying to tell his people. Not trying. He doesn't try. (laughs) He's telling his people, this is what I'm going to do. And you can trust me because I slaughtered the chaos monster. I've laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens. And I rescued you out of Egypt. I will and can do it again. Now in verse 17, Isaiah speaks for part of it. And then he quotes Yahweh towards the end of chapter 51. (laughs) That wake yourself. Wake yourself. But this time it is... Towards Jerusalem. Stand up, O Jerusalem. We see the picture is Jerusalem and, and Judah. God, wake up. Where are you? And God's like, well, hold on a second. I'm not the one sleeping. Wake up, Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of Yahweh the cup of his wrath, 
who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. We see this picture brought into of, of the wrathful cup of God. Um, this is um, throughout the scriptures. Uh, we see it in Psalm 75 for the first time. We can trace it through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, Zechariah. It's in the Gospels and it's mentioned four times in Revelation. This cup, um, it's usually meant to be strong drink or wine. Um, and it contains the wrath of God so that when, when consumed, God, the picture is through the, the drink that God's judgment comes. Staggering. No longer under control. This is God's wrath. And the people of Jerusalem have drunk it to the dregs. They are in a state of staggering. Verse 18. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. You're lost. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of Yahweh, the rebuke of your God. This is a bad picture. They are not in a good place. Wake up, though, he says. Wake up. Get up from this judgment, from this cup of judgment. I mean, the the natural response is, well, excuse me, Yahweh, Lord, this is the cups from you. You made us drink the cup. You're the one that judged us. And then watch what his answer is. Verse 21. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says Adonai, your Lord, Yahweh, double name, your God who pleads the cause of his people. And here he speaks. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, You shall drink no more. It's over. It's done. It's been drunk. It's been fulfilled. Now it's done. Now what happens? Verse 23. I'm going to take that cup and I will put it into the hand of your tormentors, your torturers, your enemies, who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. This is a beautiful picture because it states that even though God was the one who judged his people, it's done. Okay, this is like the really awful discipline with your child, okay? Or child when you've been disciplined and it's been like one of those really bad ones, right? And kind of the return to family normalcy is not going to happen because people were gone and sounds were heard behind closed doors and crying and now we come back into normal life and it's kind of like, okay, that's over. Things are okay now. Sometimes it takes a little bit of convincing. But the punishment, the discipline is now done. It's finished It's complete. And now God is going to take it out on the people that he used to punish them. Right? We've seen this picture before. God uses Babylon. God uses Assyria to judge Israel. He uses Babylon to judge Judah. He uses Persia, Medo-Persia, to judge Babylon. He uses God, although it can use these other people like Cyrus, in the end their sin will still be judged. And the people that he will rescue is his people. The people of Israel, the people that God has chosen. So now, even though you've had to light, the picture is bowing down. The picture is of the people, the slaves, um, being made to lie down so that they may become a temporary road for people to pass over. Hey, just lay down. Step on your back to get over this mud puddle. That is, that is just demeaning. And literally, you're down in the muck and the mire and the mud. And now God is saying, no more of that. No more of that. It's time 
to wake up. And chapter 52 begins with that concept. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments. You're in the mud. People are abusing you. You are bowed down and staggering. Now, get dressed. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Now, we need to be clear about this. Um, In the Old Testament, um, the uncircumcised and the unclean are designations for Gentiles, for those who are not God's people. God's people were circumcised. The mark of circumcision was the mark of the covenant. And so um, all the boys on the eighth day were circumcised to show their covenant relationship with God, their special relationship with Yahweh. And, and the mark of circumcision, although just done on the males, um, meant to cover the family unit. So the patriarch was circumcised and his circumcision marked out his family, very explicitly marked out his family as being covenant people, God's people. And so when Goliath, for example, comes and mocks the children of Israel, David said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Okay. And his, his, his point is, who is this ungodly outsider who is mocking our God? This is used throughout the scriptures. So um, let's just be really clear. Um, I, I took this out of a study Bible that I found really helpful. Um, this picture is a physical condition that marks a person as a non-Israelite. And also in scripture, it's used as a spiritual condition that applies to both Israelites and non-Israelites. So in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy sometimes, God says, not only are you supposed to circumcise the boys on the eighth day, but circumcise your heart. Cleanse yourself. Be purified. Live before me in a pure way. So the picture is, all these uncircumcised nations, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, they came in, these unclean, uncircumcised, they defiled God's land, God's people, God's temple. It's not going to happen ever again. Now, what this doesn't say is that no Gentile can become a follower of God. So let's not read that into the text. Because what's beautiful about what we see explicitly in the New Testament is that circumcision was a mark in the Old Covenant of God's people and no longer has the mark for God's covenant people. Gentiles can now come in and join in this covenant. So Paul says in the book of Galatians very clearly, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised if you're not justified in God's eyes. You must believe. Circumcision doesn't save you. This is clear here and needs to be kept clear because what we've seen in Isaiah is not only the restoration of God's people, but the explosion of God's presence and God's praise to the ends of the earth. So, the, the, the main promise here is that you're not going to be destroyed by outsiders and enemies anymore. Very interesting. Because we get to the New Testament, and there's a king on the throne in Jerusalem, and the Israelites are... Pro- oh, wait, no. Rome has their boot on the neck of Israel. So what is this promise? Because in 70 AD, um, the Romans came in and destroyed the temple of God in Jerusalem, and for the last 2,000 years, there has been no temple in Jerusalem. So, so what's going on here? <laughs> what is this? And this is the difficulty of poetic prophecy. What's being stated here? What is being stated here? Well, look at verse 2 to help us with that. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. 
So there is this immediate speaking of you're going to go back to the land, the, the, the captivity will end. But there's also this further prophetic look at someday in the future, someday in the future, there will be a, a complete fulfillment of this. Up until now, there's been partial fulfillments. Um, both of the land of Israel and of the new covenant followers of God. And he continues, watch what he says in verse 3. For thus says Yahweh, you were sold for nothing, and you should be redeemed without money. For thus says Adonai Yahweh, it's a double, double name of God there. My people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, he's reviewing their history, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, declares Yahweh, and continually all the day my name is despised. This is really, really hard to wrap your mind around. You might want to go back and read this. I had to read this like 27 times, and I still don't know if I have a total grasp of this. But the picture here is of the captive children of Israel. Where their, their history was one of slavery and of captivity. And the name of Yahweh was despised because the captors had taken God's people. And when you, when you conquered another people in that time, it, clearly your gods beat their gods. And so their gods no longer are powerful because clearly they lost and they're not, they're not, they're not strong. My name is despised. Verse 6. Therefore, what's the, what's the cure? The people shall know my name. The people shall know my name. This is speaking ultimately to the last time, the new heavens and the new earth, where we're to see God face to face, where there's clear... Um, no unmediated communion between us and God. When finally there is no stain of sin, there is no oppressor to get in the way. The children of Israel were to see this as partially fulfilled, but when they struggle to see it, when, what about Rome? What about the Greeks? What about Alexander the Great? What about all these conquerors? Well, then clearly there must be something more that is meant here. Or God's wrong. Like he just, he just missed it. Right? So those are, those are kind of our options here. And so then we see this. The last time this is used um, in the book of Isaiah, uh, but the, the 42nd time it's been used is in the last part of verse 6. Therefore, what are the next three words? In that day. The 42nd time that phrase has been used in Isaiah, and it hasn't been used since chapter 31. In that day, they shall know that it is I who speak, here I am pointing to a a future complete fulfillment. One day, one day, they shall know that it is I who speak, here I am. The promises that will be um, given to us in Jesus, who says there's no other name under heaven on which we must be believed to be saved, this is what Jesus fulfills. And we see that because in verse 7, we see a a familiar verse um, that we're probably more familiar with coming from the book of Romans. But here is the quotation from Isaiah. In verse 7, Isaiah begins to speak again. And we have here the last part from verses 7 to 12. Poetry again. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Uh, the, the picture here um, is of a besieged city waiting for news from a delivering army. You see this in verse 8. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see. 
the return of Yahweh to Zion. Here's the picture. The picture is God's people in captivity in a city. Behind the walls, they're being besieged by enemies. And they're looking. The watchmen in the towers are looking. The guys with good vision, they're looking because they've heard that help is on the way. And what's beautiful is when they see that runner off in the distance. Um, you may, may remember this from the story of David. There's a runner that comes to tell David that his son Absalom has been defeated and his kingdom is now safe and secure. They're watching for him. And they see this guy and like, oh, wow, he's running fast. He must be bringing good news. The picture here is of this guy running really fast. And the watchmen see, here he comes. Yes, yes, victory, release, safety, security, salvation. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. It is great news that is brought to this city of captive people. They need to hear the end of verse 7. Your God reigns. The watchmen rejoice. They lifted their voice. Why? Because Yahweh is returning. So the people in the city are watching. They see a runner. Here comes the runner. The runner says, good news. Your God reigns. Which the people take to mean, here comes Yahweh. He's returning. The runner kind of runs ahead of everybody else. And behind that comes the conquering king. The king who is going to come and join his people. The return of Yahweh to Zion. Verse 9. What's the response? Break forth together into singing. Um, one of the commentators said he'd, he'd uh, translate it like this. Explode in loud shouts. Um, this is the comeback touchdown. This is the last second three-pointer. This is that massive tax return this, that you weren't expecting, right? <laughs> this is, this is, yes! This is an explosion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. Why? For Yahweh has comforted, there it is again, his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. He's paid for them. He's bought them back. And how has he done it? Well, the picture we've seen before this is that this picture of God's arm. Yahweh has bared his holy arm. Okay? So watch this. You're not going to be impressed by me, but just, right? It's this thing, right? Except for like a really strong person. Okay? God has bared his arm. And when, like, when the sleeve starts coming over with the bicep, you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> okay? Yahweh has bared his arm. He showed up at the fight, took off his shirt, and everyone went, uh-oh. <laughs> Here it comes. Yahweh has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, so they all can see. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Clearly, this did not happen in Isaiah's day. This must be a reference to the future. What God's intention is for the future, that all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Folks, we're, we're in the middle of this. We're in the middle of the coastlands, the islands, hearing the salvation of our God. In the last 300 years, there's been an explosion in, in world missions uh, of um, the Christian church from, and all nations reaching out to every nation. It started in Great Britain primarily and a little bit in Europe and then in America. And now it's from all nations to every other nation. You know, tons of people are sending missionaries to us here and we're sending missionaries to work with others there. You know, we can't get into Muslim nations very well, um, our, our uh, European heritage. But you know who's going to the Muslim nations? Um, Hispanics. You know why? Because they look a lot more like Muslim peoples and they're not rejected as easily. So there's this huge training center in South America to train South Americans to go and reach the Muslim peoples. And, and we partner with them. We say, I can't go. They're going to see me and say, uh-uh, you can go. And that works differently in different places with different skin color, different culture, um, different clothing practices. And all over the world, God's people are sending each other to go spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
Now, lastly, lastly here, verses 11 and 12, and this is where we'll end today. Isaiah says, depart, depart. And this is the, the, the two reference, right? Awake, awake, listen, listen. Depart, depart, go out from there. And so now it seems like we, we came back to like actual this history because Isaiah's writing this for people in exile. Get out of there. Depart, get ready, go out from here. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves. Watch this. You who bear the vessels of Yahweh. What is that? That's the, that's the temple articles that Nebuchadnezzar took. Remember in the story of Daniel and the writing on the wall? Uh, Belshazzar is having a drunken party, and he's like, hey, let's bring out the, the instruments from the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. Let's drink out of those things. Let's defile those. Ah, we conquered them, right? Let the wine pour freely into these goblets. When Cyrus sent the people of Judah back to rebuild the temple, he gave them these articles back. He gave them the vessels of Yahweh. This picture is, guys, you're going home. Get out of there. God's freeing you. He's releasing you. This is fulfilled now in this time. For you shall not go out in haste. You shall not go in flight. You're not running away. Okay, you're not trying to escape in the middle of the night. For Yahweh will go before you in front. And the God of Israel will be your rear guard behind you. Now, what does that sound like? That sounds like the Exodus again. The pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud. Remember when the people of Israel, the children of Israel get to the Red Sea? Moses, what did you bring us out here for? We're going to die. Ah, Pharaoh's coming. We're trapped. Well, the cloud that's leading the Israelites goes from the front of them and goes to the rear so that the, the chariots of Pharaoh can't get through. God is their rear guard. He's the, he led them there and then he protects them as well. So the picture is you're in Babylon, you're in Assyria, you've been scattered to these other places, but you're returning to Jerusalem. Gather together. God's going to lead you back. He's going to protect you. He's going to let you get back there and set up the temple. So man alive, we've gone all over the place. We've gone to the new heavens and the new earth. We've gone from 700 BC to like 538 BC. We've talked about um, Jesus a little bit in here, uh, the turn of BC to AD. Um, We're all over the place. And that's why this book can be hard sometimes. And that's why if you've got a study Bible, please go and use those study notes. Get some really smart guys who I read all week to try to help me understand this, to really guide us through what's being said here. Of course, there's disputes and there's disagreements. But the overwhelming picture uh, leading up to next week is that God is getting ready to do something. Salvation is coming. Salvation is coming. It's coming. God has promised us. So what do we do? What do we do with this? (laughs) Uh get to the next part because 53 is a lot more easy to read and we understand it better maybe but but maybe we can dig a little deeper and find some diamonds here um just a reminder first thing is fear not fear not this is repeated throughout isaiah there's plenty to fear the children of israel but he says god says fear not why well in this passage if the israelites had nothing to fear because they were the people of the god of exodus which is the the argument how much more then do you and I have nothing to fear because the same God okay, who, who, drew, who, who drew his people out of Egypt sent his son and gave him up in what is called in the book of Luke a new exodus, a second exodus, to conquer Satan's sin and death. We're not just talking about Babylonians here. We're talking about Satan. We're talking about the last enemy, death. We have nothing to fear. 
We have nothing to fear. This is said throughout the scripture. What can the man do to me? He can just kill me. That's all he can do. I mean, what kind of, that's courage and bravery. And that's what our brothers and sisters face all over the world today. I mean, they say this, and you can read the Fox Book of Mars and say it. Just kill me. I mean, that's all you can do. <laughs> I'm, I mean, can you imagine what that would be like to the executioner? What is wrong with this person? Which is why throughout history, sometimes the executioners have laid down their swords and said, I don't know what that guy believes, but I'm with him. Because that's incredible. He doesn't even fear death. Wouldn't There's nothing for us to fear. That's why Christian missionaries have gone to places where they knew they probably wouldn't come back. You know, the missionaries in the early 19th century brought their coffins with them on the mission field. Can you imagine that? They're on the boat and they're like kids are playing on their coffins as they, as they, as they go across the ocean. Why? Because they had nothing to fear. What can man do to me? The next thing we can do is sing with gladness. Um, this verb for singing that's used here in Isaiah is used more than 100 times in just the Old Testament. And oftentimes it's an imperative. It's not, hey, sing if you're a good singer. It's sing! Make a joyful noise. Right? Praise the Lord. That's the command. Make a joyful noise. Sing to the Lord. Sing with gladness. We should be the people that sing. Do you know that most other religions don't sing like we do? Christianity is a distinctive religion because we sing. We sing out to the, to the God who has saved us. Another thing is, I wanted to consider this, the next one, this is the third bullet point. Are we gospeling? And by that I mean, are we evangelizing? And by that I mean, are we sharing the gospel? Are we gospeling? Are we the kind of people that are the good news, like, like Paul uses, beautiful feet, delivering good news? See, this is the picture. In Israel, they were looking for the, good new, the, good, the guy with the good news to come. You know, now, we're the guy with the good news. <laughs> and now we can go and share that good news. So are you praying for ways to share this great good news with your family, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers? Are you looking for opportunities to be a herald of good news? Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> right? Good news. Hear ye, hear ye. The king is coming. Salvation is coming. Another question is, can it be said of us that we, several things here, pursue righteousness. That's said in this, in this passage. The ones who follow God pursue righteousness. So this is like tag. Okay, I'm going to get you. Run after righteousness. Are you going to pursue it? Uh, what about seeking the Lord? Are you seeking the Lord? Seek the Lord. Can that be said of you? Would that be something that people would describe you as? He's a God seeker. No righteousness. So not just pursue it. Once you grab it, get to know, what is this? What does righteousness look like? This justice. This following of God. Would someone describe us as having God's law in our heart? Is our conscience pricked by the Holy Spirit to live according to God's law? These are the things that should define the people of God. These are things that we should work hard to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We've been saved. There's nothing to fear. So let's live like this. Lastly, the title of the sermon is Salvation is Coming. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Um, Romans 13, 11 says, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. It's closer. It's coming. It's happening. That's why, that's why a Christian funeral, although incredibly sad, is also a joyful thing because salvation has come. That dear brother or sister is with the Lord. We need to consider this with urgency. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You are totally welcome to be here. We're glad that you're here. God says in his word that today, now, is the day of salvation. You need to be confronted with the problem that you are a sinner. 
And God, as we've seen, judges sin. He bears his arm against sin. And he has provided in his son Jesus the person who would bear that sin for us. That God would pour out his wrath, the cup of his wrath, on Jesus rather than on you. So that if you repent and turn from your sins and believe, you too can have this salvation. So those of us who are Christians, we've been saved. The Bible says we're being saved. And one day we look forward to our final adoption as sons and daughters, our future complete salvation. No more sin, no more pain. Seeing God face to face, that's what we want and we want you to have it too. Father, we thank you for uh, this powerful word from the book of Isaiah. Sometimes confusing. So give us minds to think hard and to to, um, ask for help from your Holy Spirit as we search the scriptures. Lord, I pray that next week as Pastor Ron gets to Um, Isaiah 53, Lord, that we would just be confronted with the identity of this servant, your servant, who would sacrifice himself, who would be bruised for our iniquities, crushed because we are sinners. Lord, help us to see that. Lord, I pray that we would invite people next week to hear this good news, to hear this good news prophesied 700 years before Jesus, 2,700 years ago, and relevance for our day-to-day living now. God, be with us as we go from this place, as we go to Sunday school classes, and as we go to work this week. Lord, for the chili cook-off tonight, for all the opportunities we have to serve you, help us to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. In Jesus' name, amen.